following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, we welcome you uh, this morning to Fellowship Bible Church. Welcome to those that are online. I know that uh, we have several folks that are very faithful uh, listeners or observers in the online world, and we... uh, recognize you today. Thank you for participating. Often we have folks from uh, uh, Texas, Florida. Um, somebody else told me they are watching. Oh, uh, somebody who's normally in the center, south central part of Michigan, but they actually are in Florida as well, observing. And then one of our own families is uh, taking a little break away for the uh, weekend, and they're going to be watching from Florida today. So we have several from uh, thousand miles away or better participating with us. So we're grateful for that and grateful for Brother James who has brought his Bible notebook and some notes and I suspect he's going to be delivering those to us today. All right, brother. Thank you. Good morning. We're going to go back to the book of Nahum or Nahum, whichever the proper way to pronounce it. We started to look at this book and what we're planning to do is just to work our way all the way through the book, Nahum. It's a small little book in terms of the number of words or the number of chapters. It seems to be small. It is listed in the books that are we normally refer to as the minor prophets. And as we have said before, minor prophet doesn't refer to the message or the messages, but rather to the length of the book. So Nahum, Nahum, a name that means comfort or a comforter or the idea of bringing comfort. One of the things that we notice and that I emphasized before is that when you first look in this book and the first part of it, the first verse, it says the burden against Nineveh. So this book has a lot to do in focusing on Nineveh. Nineveh was a very ancient city. It was a magnificent city in many ways. It existed for millennia. And they had times when they were the most powerful nation in the earth. And this book says the burden against Nineveh. Now, the author of the book is listed here. Uh, it says, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Now, one of the things we understand is that when we say author, we're not saying that it's a human book, but that God used this human in his special way to cause this to be recorded, and it's God's word that we have before us. So we don't really know much about Nahum. It just says what a little bit is here from uh, the Elkoshite. So he may have been from a place in Judah, a name 
Al-Kash or something of that sort. But we don't really need to know a lot about him or the place from which he came. We really don't need to know a lot about that. Some people might want to dig around in history, ancient history, and see what all can be learned about that or those things. But the reason that I said that we don't need to know a lot about it is because God didn't tell us a lot about it. So, so we don't need to know a lot about it. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that there isn't help for us in studying history and ancient history and trying to find out something about the patterns and the culture and things like that. Because those things can be very helpful to us in understanding the texts correctly and properly. But we, we really don't need more than what God has given to us on these kinds of things. So it talks about a burden. A burden. <clears throat> this first word, burden. Your translation may have the word oracle. And it may be reference to the oracle of uh, against Nineveh. So a burden, the carrier of a weight. So Judah, we have Nineveh as being the one who is the focus for this judgment uh, narrative, oracle. But Judah also has a prominent place in it although in terms of the words, they're small. But there's enough there for Judah to understand that God is still in control and that God is going to deal with these people who have been their perennial enemy and who have been a pain in their side for a very long time. And God was going to deal with them once and for all and be done with them. So, now, in verses 2 and 3, I selected a portion of that section as a heading for these two verses. And it says, the Lord will take vengeance against his adversaries. The Lord will take vengeance. I want to pull out some things that are listed here. It says, God is jealous. It says, the Lord avenges. And it also says, the Lord is furious. And it says, he reserves wrath for his enemies. He will take vengeance against his adversaries. I want us to notice some things about, about that. One of the things we mentioned about Nahum is that the form of, the, uh, of this writing has a lot of uh, poetic expressions in it. Uh, somebody likened this one as being more like Isaiah in that way than other books. But there are a lot of dramatic expressions, metaphors, and different things like that. And we talked about 
how the form, or sometimes you use the word genre to refer to forms of uh, communicating. And so we find a lot of things here. And I just mentioned some of those. The, you know, the words jealous and avengers and furious and adversaries and enemies and all these kinds of, kinds of things. So God is that way. Normally, when we think about jealous or jealousy, if it's in reference to our plane, then often that's a negative thing. Often that's a, that's a bad thing, a jealousy. Or if we talk about taking vengeance against someone, then that's usually a bad thing. Uh, we think about being vengeful, that's not good. But what we, when we, so when we see these words here used in reference to God, one of the things we need to be sure that we don't do, which many commentators have done, is to impugn God's character as if he was a human like we are. And if there's something, as if there's something wrong about God having these kinds of uh, expressions about himself, and that we, we must not do. So in speaking about these forms, we see parallelism used in, in this section in actually several number of places throughout this uh, small book. Parallelism, the idea that an expression is, is stated in two different, slightly different ways, but basically is saying the same thing. And that's one way of bringing stronger attention or focus uh, on the thing that's being spoken about. So some of those parallels, and I'm going to give you a couple of parallel ideas here. Jealous and avengers. We'll take vengeance, reserves wrath, adversaries, enemies. Those, those are kind of parallel terms uh, there. And some translations, rather than saying jealous, will have the word zealous. <laughs> uh, the idea that God is zealous uh, in protecting his people and is furious against his enemies. But jealous, avengers, furious, wrath, those are very strong words. And so we take note of those. God is jealous in verse 2. And the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. That grabs attention. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for the enemies. That grabs our attention. Now, Nam is writing, and it says against Nineveh. Nineveh, the word, and we think of Nineveh as speaking, some places here will refer to the city itself, other places it's used uh, as kind of a metonymy to refer to Assyria, 
but the word Nineveh as, as a capital is listed there. So it's uh, Assyria in a larger sense that is the focus here and all the evil things that they had done. We talked about some of those things. We mentioned before that the Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. That in 722 BC, they went in and wreaked havoc at that, in that place, and they deported many of the people, left some of the poor behind to care for the land and things like that. But it was a devastating thing. And as we have said before, one of the things that we learned and understood through the scriptures is that while Assyria was God's instrument for the judgment that he was bringing upon the northern kingdom, the Assyrians overstepped their bounds. They went beyond their call or their order, their, their duty to do what God had commanded for them to do. And, of course, there has to be just recompense for doing that. They went beyond. But they were adversaries towards Israel. We also referred before to the 701 invasion of uh, the Assyrians. When they destroyed many of the towns and villages surrounding Jerusalem, but Jerusalem itself was spared. And so Nineveh, the Assyrians, they were a mighty and a powerful nation. In fact, they were so confident in their abilities that they dared the people to even think that they could somehow survive against their attacks, even if they had their trust in this God whom uh, Hezekiah was telling them to trust. And so that happened. His adversaries. So one of the things that I wanted us to focus on here is you notice in the last part of verse 2. See, in the first verse, it says the burden against Nineveh. I've just talked about some of the bad things that the Assyrians did. Nineveh, the Assyrians, did towards Israel. And they did many bad things, not just against Israel and Judah. They did many bad things, horrible things, horrifying things against many nations. That was their way of, of operating and conducting themselves. And so this vision is now is saying, well, okay, God is saying, I'm against you. Now here, in this verse 2, the second half, it says, the Lord will take vengeance against his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. To me, that says that 
the Assyrians are being listed here as adversaries of God, enemy, enemies of God. But the deeds that they did, we talked about it in the context of Judah and Israel. And so the reality of the matter is, or one way of thinking about that is this idea that they did what they did against Judah and against Israel, all the wickedness they they were doing. But the greatest transgression that they had whether they were against God. They had become adversaries to God. They had become his enemy. And later in the section, or in the, in the book here, it talks about them fighting against God. I said before that, could you imagine that if the Assyrians had understood that there's only one true God and he's the all-powerful God and, and no human or a human government, a military force can equal him. If they had understood that, that they would have stood in defiance of him and said, I can take you on. That's kind of a ludicrous idea, right? Somehow they have to have deception. They have to be deceived in order to go toe-to-toe against God. But that was a situation they found themselves in. And so he said his enemies. Well, the Bible tells us that blessed is the nation whose God is Lord, the people he has chosen as his inheritance. I'm going to read some verses here from Psalms. Psalm uh, 33, first of all. In Psalm 33, consider what the Lord says here. He talks about these kinds of things. Begin the verse number 12 in Psalm 33. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord 
He is our help and our shield, for our hearts shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Judah, even though it was a sinful people and had faced judgment, was still God's people. I want to read another section from these Psalms here, and that would be in Psalm 146. To be an enemy of God is not the place to be. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I shall praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man, in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He receives the fatherless and the widow by the way of the Lord, but the way of the Lord, no, I'm sorry, but the way of the wicked, but the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. That's what the Lord says. And so Nineveh is in the crosshairs of God, and it's not a good place to be. We see something about God's character in the next portion of the book that I'm looking at here in the next verse. In verse number three, it says the Lord is slow to anger. Slow to anger. I call that an aspect of God's character. And then it goes on to say, but he is also great in power. He will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and the storm and all that. And I will get to those. But he's slow to anger. Well, so we talked about the Ninevites. One of the ways that we can see this slowness of God's anger is by considering how that when Jonah was sent 
to Nineveh, the people were wicked and they were deserving of judgment. In fact, they were deserving of the judgment that later fell upon them. But Jonah had spoken over 100 years prior to this. Is that a slow to anger? Slow to anger. God demonstrated that. How long had their wickedness carried on before Jonah went to them? God, slow to anger. But one of the things is that being slow to anger doesn't mean that their wicked will get a pass. It only means that they will be passed over for a time until the time is ripe. And the passing over is an opportunity. An opportunity to do one of two things. Either to repent and get in the right alignment with God or to continue in unrepentance and stay that way until the judgment hand of God comes down. The long-suffering, slow to anger, God being that way. Slow to anger. Now, God is an omnipotent God. He's a powerful God. He's a mighty God. And so he is able to do whatever he chooses but it does it in his own time. Slow to anger and great in power. I'm going to read now through verse 5. We're looking at the magnificence, omnipotence of God, and we see some parallelisms in this section as well. I'll point some of those out. It says here, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. The clouds are like the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel, wither and the flower of Lebanon, wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all that dwell in it. Some of the words that I want you to notice here are these. It speaks about a whirlwind and a storm. It speaks about clouds and dust. It speaks about sea and rivers. It speaks about wither and wilts, parallelisms, a form of presenting that grips the attention, draws the focus to say, look at what I'm saying here. To think about the clouds. We look at the clouds and we marvel. But it says here, the clouds are like dust to his feet. 
That's interesting. You know, I can ask, how many humans have walked on the clouds as if they were walking on the beach and the dust was coming up at their feet? Well, that's, that's a rhetorical question, right? Because we know the answer. But it draws a comparison between us and God. He is, he, he, the magnitude of him is beyond our ability even to express, even with the best of language. So we clearly are no match for him. But it speaks about these things. So the clouds, the storm, the whirlwind. See, storms are a problem for us. We wish to not be caught up in one. The whirlwind is a problem for us. We, not, we wish not to be caught up in it. It's a problem for us. For God, what about him? Verse 4 says, this is what God, where God views these things. He said he rebukes the sea. <laughs> rebukes the sea, and it makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. So God then, that's, that's the power that God has. So when it says that he's slow to anger, it says he has great power. So slow to anger has nothing to do with his, his power or lack thereof. It's just that he's doing things in his own timing. According to his own plan, he's operating. But he can do what he wants and choose, chooses to do when he chooses to do it. I was thinking about a few things here. Rebukes the sea. When the prophet is writing, and Judah is supposed to be able to get some comfort from what, this, what is being said here, but they also are supposed to know something about their history. They're supposed to know about what happened when they were captive in Egypt and how God delivered them and how when they were being chased by the Egyptians and they were facing the sea, the Red Sea, or some call it the Reed Sea maybe more properly, but the people were terrified because this Russian army, this army was rushing up to, to take them. And if they kept right on going, as things looked, they would just be in the sea. It would be peril. But what did God do? That was no big deal for God. That's not even a major challenge for him. We know that because nothing is a major challenge for him. So he just rebuked. He just tried it. Now, that's really quite an interesting thing. Because what God did is he provided a way of escape, a way of escape for his people. Now, I emphasize that because, you know, how we talk about what Scripture tells us about our temptations. And it says, there has no temptation taken you, but it, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be uh, tempted above that uh, of, to which you are able, but he will make a way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. This situation was not temptation in that particular sense, but God made a way of escape. And the only way for them to escape the enemy was to keep going forward. That's the only way. If they had turned back, the enemy would have overtaken and destroyed them. So the only way to escape was the one way that God made, and that was straight ahead. But they couldn't see any possibility of escape. In fact, it was impossible. But God, but God made that way. And that's similar to the condition of the world and every person in it. No way of escape. No way. We're sinners. We're born like that. We live like that. And God says every sinner, every person, is going to have a meeting with his creator. And it will be in one of a couple of judgments. One we refer to as the great white throne judgment. And all the people who show up there, after that judgment, they will be banished from God forever. And there's another one. We call it the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ. And all those who show up there will, after the judgment is done, be gone on to be with God forever. Now, the reason they were able to be in that place is because God had made a way of escape, one way. And that one way that he made was his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death, burial, resurrection, God made a way, a way of escape. God made a way of escape for the Egyptians so that they could successfully keep on going to the promised land. But they only made one way. Anybody who thought that they could escape by some other means would be doomed. God made a way of escape. We see another one in Joshua where God did a similar thing. And he cleared the, he made dry land for the people to be able to pass on over into the promised land. So God did these things. He says he can rebuke the sea. He can make it dry. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 4, he drives up the rivers. God does that. That's nothing for him. And so he made that way for Joshua and his people to be able to go into the promised land to cross over. Now, there's another thought I'll just, I think I mentioned that, but we, we see in Matthew chapter 8 how Jesus himself had a situation where there was a problem and the people were, I can use the word terrified because of the storm. And they said to Jesus, you know, we're about to perish. But he just simply rebuked the sea and it was calm. They were with him and they were safe. They made their way of escape. And so that is what God is like. So he is the omnipotent God. He is all-powerful, but he will not. Although slow to anger, 
acquit the wicked. You're not acquit the wicked. What a mighty contrast that is to the world in which we live. How many times are the, are the wicked ones acquitted in our courts of law? And the reverse of that as well, when the, the ones who are not the guilty party are condemned. Now, we're going to have some of that because some of that is just going to be a measure of just human frailty, not being able to get it right every time. And so we have to keep working at it. And so that means that there are going to be some situations where the wrongful, people be wrongfully convicted and wrongfully acquitted, but not with God. That will never happen with him. And so he says he's not going to acquit those. But now look at more here in it says here, verse, uh, also in verse 4, it talks about Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon. Uh, these three places. Now, this is really quite an interesting thing because these places had significance. Bashan, in terms of its rich pastures, Carmel, uh, because of its vineyards and orchards, and Lebanon, because of its magnificent forest. So these, these kinds of places, but it says here, you know, God, he says, he uses the word withers, a wilt. So you can see a beautiful situation of growth and some of these orchards uh, and some of these different places where things are just so beautiful. And God could just make it all wilt. It's nothing to him. Now, some other things here. Let's just move along here. In verse number five, the mountains quake before him. The hills melt. These metaphors. But uh, the quaking, we often think about it in reference to the earthquake. Because the earth really does shake <laughs> and quake with our shake. Earth quakes. But the mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all that dwell in it. So that none of these things, no matter, you see, you think about the mountains. And you might say, well, what is the most stable, what is the most stable structure that we have? on the earth. And somebody might say, mountains. Somebody may say that those planes which hit those towers in New York could have flown into the side of a mountain without doing any major damage to the mountain because it's more stable than those towers. But for God, He can do the same thing with the mountains as the plane caused to happen with the towers. Come tumbling. He's, he has that kind of power. Quick before him, it melts. He's at his presence. And it says, the world and all who dwell in it. That's important. Because a sovereign God is over all the world. No one 
can escape in that sense. So then to come into the crosshairs of this God, expressing these kinds of terms, when he says this is a burden on the oracle against Nineveh, shall I say that Nineveh is in big time trouble? The best thing they could do is what they did when Jonah came and preached to them. And that is to listen and to heed the message. That's the best they could do. Otherwise, a God with this kind of power is one which cannot be successfully uh, overcome. So that's the burden against Nineveh. It's a heavy weight. But these perennial enemy of Israel, of God's people, it says they're going to get their due. And as for Assyria, it says he was going to deal with them and be done with them. And never would they rise again to do to Israel and Judah what they had done. And they haven't risen again. Somebody said that I think Alexander the Great was fighting a war not far from the ruins of this great city, Nineveh, and he didn't even know it. They didn't rise. People are digging out and finding something about them, the archaeologists, but it never rose again. So this is God's word. This is God's doing. This is God's prophet, Nahum, who has been an instrument of God to present the words and the messages of God. And now here we are all these hundreds of years later, and we're reasoning it, and we have the same God, and we appeal to him because we know that our need before him is great as well. We'll bow now in prayer to close. Our Father, we are we're humble, Lord, in your sight. We know that thou art the great God, the omnipotent, omniscient, that no one can escape your notice and no one can escape the need for your help and we ask you to help us so that our exercise here will not have been in vain. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention.